before we jump into scripture, I, I just want to um, announce or tell you a little bit about myself. Um, first, my wife, my lovely wife, is right there in the corner, and I have two kids here somewhere sitting among so I'm sitting among you, um, Avalyn and Hayden over there, back there. Um, Avalyn is 15 years old, and Hayden is 13, and I have a son that's 17. He is currently um, with his parents, uh, I mean grandparents, um, in Illinois, and learning to drive, which is scary for me, and also working at McDonald's this summer. We uh, get into the job, so he's not with us, but he will be coming actually this week to visit. Um, we live, as Ben said, in Dakar, Senegal, but I know that some of you are new, so just a little bit of background about us. I mean, new for me. I don't only come about once a year over here. Um, we started on the mission field in 2008 to Africa, and we first went to a country called Mauritania. Um, I had served in the Peace Corps there. I knew the language and culture, and that's actually what drew me overseas, was I desired to minister uh, to a people group, particularly, and so we went there. And uh, after we had lived there for a year, I worked in the prisons and did stuff with human trafficking. And after, and we lived in a slum, and after I had lived there for a year, um, we got targeted by Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and, and had to leave um, almost overnight. And we came back here. Um, and uh, this congregation was pivotal in our healing and, and, uh, and helpful to us. You are our congregation, and I can tell you we would not have made it back on the field without you. Uh, so we spent some time of healing and recovering here, and we went back overseas and we went to Uganda, to Good Shepherd's Fold, um, and we served there at an orphanage where I directed a primary school of around 450 kids. Um, I designed a high school that's currently up and, and running, and uh, we also uh, worked and discipled university students. Um, they were orphans, and uh, also we did adoptions, so that there are 12 uh, kids, I think, in the Piedmont Triad near here who were adopted from Good Shepherd's Fold in Uganda. Uh, we served on that adoption committee and, and helped uh, do that. Well, as we were in Uganda um, and had been there for a while, um, we, we had sent our son to Rift Valley Academy, which was 13 hours away, and he attended there for three years, and we were about to have to send our daughter and our younger son there as well. Well, I'm an education major, and so we decided that wasn't uh, the best idea. And so we wanted to be with all of our family, and so we decided to make, make another move and went to Dakar, Senegal, where now I direct Dakar Academy. And the reason why I feel like Dakar Academy is important is several reasons. You may not realize this, but almost every parent that we have at Dakar Academy could not be there if, if, if Dakar Academy did not exist. West Africa is a very difficult place to homeschool. We saw this when we were in rural East Africa. When you homeschool in Africa, there is not um, clubs. There are not uh, people you can get together with as easily as you can, say, here in the United States. So homeschool co-ops. Uh, so it's, in other words, it's very difficult for kids to socialize. And uh, if you look at it statistically, missionaries will not go to a place unless there is schooling for their kids. Uh, so one of the biggest factors in people with kids. In fact, it is the number one factor for missionaries on the field. And so that's one of the reasons why Dakar Academy is important. Two, we are actually a place where many people find Christ. Um, we at Dakar Academy, we've had the Saudi Arabian ambassadors' children. Uh, in fact, we are the school of choice for the Muslim embassies. They find that uh, they want our um, morals. Um, they don't want our Bible and our Christ, but they're still willing to come. 
And uh, so we have the Saudi Arabian ambassador's kids, the Pakistani ambassador's kids, the Omani, and all of them, while they're in elementary school, gave their lives to Christ. Um, now, that will create interesting challenges ahead. In fact, uh, right before I left, I had the Omani ambassador in my office, and he was telling me, his uh, son has ADHD, um, and he was telling me, you know, that your school's amazing. You're, you're the only school who puts up with my son. <laughs> and I didn't know what to say with him. I didn't, you know, at that point, because uh, we were in there for disciplinary reasons, too. Um, <laughs> but he just said, your, your teachers are so much more gracious. They're so much more kind. And he says, that's just the wonderful thing. But I tell you, I'll give you a piece of advice. Your school would be much, much better if it stopped the Bible and stopped talking about Jesus. And so, you know, I told him, you know, that, that actually goes hand in hand. The reason why maybe our teachers were nice and uh, kinder and the difference was the Bible and Jesus. And he, he disagreed with me. But the amazing part, even though Islam was fundamentally important to him, he still chose to send his kids to our school because he knew it was best for his son. He could see the difference. He could feel the difference. And so that's what we hope to provide for many of our students there is a place where it's safe for them. Um, it is a place for them to find Christ. And I say safe. Um, many people are coming from, I, I often wonder, well, why have all these hard things happening to me? And one small part of that answer has been, I deal with many parents who have had to deal with some of the issues we've had to deal with. Uh, two weeks ago, um, we, are, we, we started to evacuate or help to evacuate families in Mali. There have been a number of terrorist attacks in southern Mali that have occurred, threatening many missionaries. And so we're in the process of bringing those uh, missionaries uh, to Senegal to, to kind of weather the storm. And why that was part of ours is we'd formed a feeder school in Mali that's now part of our school in Bamako, Mali. And we were bringing that whole school, which is not very big, over to Dakar Academy and getting those teachers and those parents here. And, uh, and, and processing that with them, I could process that with them because... I had gone through some of the same similar experiences. Um, and then finally, our school exists because we're there to disciple kids. And we want to be a safe place for kids to doubt, to question their faith, and for, their, for that to be a place to make it their own. You know, um, being the children of missionaries, kind of like being a pastor's kid, it's hard to have ability, a say in your faith. And we try and strive to be a place where it's okay to have doubts, uh, so that they can make it their own. And in fact, one of the statistics that we have heard is between every class, about 50 to 50 to 30 percent of the kids will come back and be missionaries themselves. So we're discipling the next group of missionaries at Dakar Academy. We are not funded by the school. We have to support raise so that we can provide the lowest cost um, education, or the lowest uh, fees, or charge missionaries the lowest fees possible. And so uh, I want to say a huge thank you, because all of what we do, we could not do without this body, and specifically Salem. I got to say, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to have a home church where I don't have to travel everywhere. Um, my duties as a director already occupy me so much, and uh, it's just wonderful to have a home church where the majority of our support comes from, and that is for sure Salem. And as Ben mentioned, uh, we could still use some support. We, uh, in fact, if we get three more supporters from Salem, we would be set. It's about what we would need is three more people to support us. And I think we'd be uh, financially solid again going forth. And so just as something to put on your heart, if you want to talk to us, um, we'd love that. And already really, really appreciate because many of you do. I want to say a big, big thank you to you because we could not be doing what we do without that. 
Um, so that's a little bit of our background. Um, and now on to the preaching. <laughs> I'll try to keep it shorter because I know um, I've already shared some. So um, when I was in the Peace Corps, I had a host family. And uh, host father, I shared a mud hut with a family of eight. And my host father, um, his wife dealt with a crippling illness. And he was always trying to figure out what he could do for her. And so even during the time I was there, he started to seek out this holy man who was known to have the power to possibly be able to cure his wife. And so he approached this holy Islamic man and said, hey, if you can cure my wife, can you cure my wife? And he said, yes, for $5,000, I will cure your wife. And so um, uh, as I moved away, he, he decided to do that. Now, $5,000 for him was about three years salary about three years that he would have to pay. So he begged, borrowed uh, from every family member in that village. And I recently uh, went with my family back to Mauritania not too long ago, and his family was still in debt from that decision. They still had not recovered uh, from, from that debt, and his wife never was healed. Um, and so why I share that story is because where we go, for guidance, what we seek for guidance, has a huge impact on us. And that's what I feel this passage is about, is about where do we go for guidance and the impact of that guidance. See, guidance is what directs you. It's what you listen to. It's what has sway in your life, what is pool, what is weight. And, you know, we often don't even realize what's guiding us. We kind of just go through, but it's, it's what really will direct the course of our lives. And this is a very simple truth. And so what I want to concentrate on is what you look to, what guides you, the Bible says forms you. And what you choose to let guide you will have certain natural consequences. And I think this is a very timely message. As our culture is continuing to tell us that what should guide us is ourselves. We live in a world of personal and sexual autonomy. We're even told to take pride that nothing can tell us what to do, how to live, how to think. We are independent, after all. We also tend to think it doesn't matter what guides you. If I'm by guided by this and you're guided by that, well, it doesn't matter. It's all personal choice anyway. However, the Bible would tell us there are big consequences to this decision. See, if you guide yourself, if you're the independent sort that does not want guidance, this means that you are your own God. Whoever calls the shots, so to speak, rules the roost. Whoever in your life makes the final determination is the true God for you. And the Bible would tell us, the Bible would tell us there needs to be something outside of yourself that fundamentally directs you, orients you, guides you, has the right to say no to you. Now, in history, self-guidance, self-direction, has rightly been seen as a sign of immaturity. Think of the child who has to have his or her own way and will not respect authority. That child is rightly considered immature. 
So this morning we're going to look at what the Bible says are, one, the consequences of worldly or self-guidance, which I would argue are very much the same. Two, what happens when we accept God's gift of guidance. And finally, the guidance in the Bible ultimately comes in the form of a relationship, not just words or rules on a page. First, the consequences of guidance outside of God. Verse 19 says, Should not a people inquire of God, or should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? A very common thing in ancient times was to go to the ancestors. And it was thought by doing a series of sacrifices or various things that you could get the guidance that you wanted. And oftentimes it was to get what you wanted. Um, of course, the Bible tells us that would be a dead end. Excuse the pun. Verse 21. So they said, when they pass through the land, they're greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Hunger, rage, distress. Darkness. When the wrong thing guides us, we become fundamentally dissatisfied because we're not going the direction we were created to go. One of the main ways you know you're going, giving weight to something besides God is a growing sense of discontent. You may see that each year you're more and more cynical, bitter, restless, because one truth about guidance of a car apart from God is we demand certain results happen. See, that's the part of why we want, usually, guidance, is we want something to happen. We want, we demand it happen, and nothing in the world can give us that guarantee. It can't give us the results we want or the desires. So, for example, we go to the financial advisor for guidance on money. We go to the doctor to get better, the GPS to discover our destination. But if you are seeking guidance from God like that, see, God says, no, I not only have the right to give you the fundamental rules about how to get to your destination, I get to, de to determine that very destination. When you seek guidance from God, you cannot say to him, I'm seeking your guidance and trusting you and doing it your way, so now you must give me X. Now, one of the fundamental things when you're seeking guidance from God is you have to say you have the right to determine the end result. Guidance from God is not advice. When we seek guidance from God, we are also surrendering the outcome to him. We're saying, I want you to determine what happens, and I trust you with that. As John Newton says, what you will, when you will, how you will. Now here's some examples. When you pray about your job, are you willing to see it as an answer to prayer if God demotes you? When you pray about your finances, are you willing to see it as an answer to prayer if he gives you less? If you're single and you're praying for a spouse, are you willing to see it as an answer to prayer if he keeps you single? Do you really believe God has a right to not give you what you want? Are you really seeking him and trusting his decision? Because normally, 
When we go for guidance, we're going to get what we want. We go to the world because seeing them, they will guarantee us. It promises certain things, but it inevitably disappoints us. The world will not give us what we want. And the problem, I think, is because of technology and the advance of technology, we have empowered the individual to have a greater amount of control over their life and independence from anyone else. And so, as Thomas Friedman has said, this is the age of the super-empowered individual. And has promised us, that I, the technology has promised us, I can give you what you want, when you want it, how you want it. And it does give us a greater sense of control and power than ever before, and therefore also a greater disillusionment. Because technology can never give us, it can never stop death, it can't give us intimate relationships, it cannot give us love, it cannot give us meaning and purpose. And as the saying goes, the higher we climb, the farther we fall. So when we don't get what we want, and technology doesn't deliver what we want, we get distressed and angry and discontent and bitter. I saw this happen recently to myself and kind of pointing out and echoing some of what Ben talked about last week. He talked about really the problem of going to others as a primary source of guidance. And I did this too. We had a uh, drug crisis this last year at our school where, um, and I noticed, and I have always had this tendency to be a people pleaser. I've always put too much weight on what other people thought. So during this drug crisis, I had to suspend the, chair, the, the chairman of the board's son, my principal's kids, and I had to expel my best friend's children. I actually ended up having to, in the midst of this crisis, suspend or expel around 18% of our student body um, because of various things that were discovered. It was, uh, they had gotten a hold of opiates that were very readily available in, in Dakar. And with these suspensions and expulsions came a lot of anger from parents and from others. Facebook posts, bad emails, and I realized when this happened that first I became distressed because the people that always, that was my main uh, go-to, uh, did not come through for me. I became even more hungry for approval. I started to seek out others more to even hear and try to get that approval. I became angry at the community and the people, and I noticed myself speaking negatively about people because, again, I was looking for guidance, primarily not from God, and not from hope, but from other people. See, I believe in that crisis, God was letting me realize that, again, I needed Him, primarily. One reason I think God lets us seek guidance outside of our outside of him and lets, and lets us trust in ourselves is it usually only when we've done that for a while that we start to see the results, the distress, the rage, the discontent, and then we become willing to not trust ourselves and to trust him. It's as simple as this. When I was younger, my parents told me not to touch the cigarette lighter in a car when I pressed it down. And of course, what did I do? I touched the cigarette lighter and burned my finger, and to this day I have a scar on my, my finger. And uh, after they told me that the first time and it happened and I saw the results, then I was much more likely to trust what my parents said and to listen to them. I don't remember many things my parents said, but I do remember them now telling me not to touch the cigarette lighter. See, God lets us stumble in the darkness, 
but he does not leave us there. And so we see in this passage of Scripture in Isaiah 9, one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture, where he talks and he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. See, the first thing Isaiah announces is that a great light has come. Light has always symbolized guidance and clarity. Light and life in the Bible actually go together, as we see in Genesis. So unless you have light, guidance, you cannot have true life. And this is true as well with all living things. They need light to, to live, to thrive. Nine, verse 9 two: the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, and them the light is shown. When Isaiah tells us a child will be born, predicting the birth of Jesus 700 years before it would happen, he tells us that the government will be upon its shoulder. What does this mean that the government will be upon his shoulder? It means he's in charge. And because he's in charge and guiding us, and, and everything, there'll be a lifting of burden. It means it's not up to us to bring about peace and justice and righteousness because uniquely he has the power to bring this about. And there's an irony here. When we give up trying to guide ourselves and we surrender to his authority, which is bigger than ourselves, we find these fruits of justice and righteousness. Now there's an idea in our culture right now. We often hear, I want to work for justice or righteousness. I'm going to work on civil rights or the environment. Wonderful, wonderful things. But the Bible says there's an order here. We cannot of ourselves bring about righteousness or justice. Righteousness and justice come from the, ones who, from the one who created righteousness and justice. Humanism would tell us the power lies with you. You can accomplish that. It can only be achieved by what you do. But God says, no, righteousness and justice will flourish as you seek me for your guidance, as you seek me for what to do. And what happens? God's guidance, see, doesn't come just from a set of cold laws and principles. It comes in the form of a person from Jesus in this relationship, he describes himself as a wonderful counselor, as a prince of peace. He tells us that peace and joy will grow out of this. And that as we sacrifice control, we'll get more peace and joy. And just as a side note, 
You know, I've oftentimes seen that one of the beauties of authority is known. I, I, I had a school board this year, and several times I thought I had wonderful ideas, and they would tell me no. And at those moments, where the, where it was a perfect time to, to sit back and think, you know what? I need to stop and think. It's really good for me to hear no sometimes. Because it reminds me that I'm not in charge. I'm often wrong. I'm small and finite. And God gives us the gift of no often in our lives when we follow his guidance. And as we trust it, we can still have peace and joy even as he tells us no. And we see when we, we follow God because we are all surrendering to one one, one control, one sinner, one, one God, that we can work together. When there are too many chiefs and not enough Indians, so the saying goes, no one gets along. But as we as a body surrender to this one God for guidance, that brings about, in part, a big amount of, 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 control, of peace and joy in relationships. Ben uh, recommended to me a number of years ago the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I've gone back to reading it every uh, year now. And one of its central points is contentment is not external, it's internal. It, what happens to you matters less, whether you're content or not, than where your focus and where your guidance comes from. Joy and peace, in other words, do not come from what is happening to you in this life, but from a relationship. And this is true, I saw in my life, I've seen this before. I, when I first started dating my wife, I remember right after I started dating her, I got a very bad job review, and I failed a college exam for the first time in my life. And what was remarkable is that as I failed that college exam and as I got that bad job review, I still had lots of joy because I was dating the most beautiful woman in the world. And I was happy. Uh, it took away the sting, it took away the pain. And so how much more so with God? He's given us his son. And as we fall in love with Jesus and we hear his wonderful, that he's a wonderful counselor and the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father, we experience this peace and joy regardless of what is happening. So that is the most important part of guidance from a relationship. Is this a father who loves us? It's a father who dotes on us and who's beautiful and the most beautiful thing in the universe. In our culture, we say it's what we do that's important. What the Bible tells us is what Jesus does and what Jesus has done that saves us. So the Bible tells us unto us a child is given, and unto us a child is born. And that takes the pressure off because it is the gift of the child, it is the gift of what God has done that will determine and bring about peace and joy and righteousness and justice as we seek him for guidance. Amen.